I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 89. Today in the show, we're joined by Kip Adams to discuss the current state of whitetails in North America and how things have changed over the past year. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sick Gear. Today, as I mentioned, we've got a great guest, a repeat guest, in fact, and that's Kip Adams, the QDMA, that's the Quality Deer Management Association's Director of Education and Outreach. And last year, at right about the same time, we had Kip on the show to discuss the state of whitetails in 2015. And it was a fascinating and enlightening discussion. So given the response we had from that episode, it made sense that we should do a similar check-in this year to see where things stand across the nation with whitetails today. Unfortunately, Kip was willing to join us again. So we're not going to be around the bush as my co-host Dan actually couldn't join us for this episode. So it's just me. And instead of our usual BS session, we are going to jump right into the interview. And with that, I know there's probably like three people cheering in their cars right now, excited that they don't need to hear me and Dan talk about stupid stuff. So with all that said, we are going to take a real quick break for a word from our partners at Sika Gear, and then we'll bring on Kip to discuss the state of whitetails in 2016. So as you know, every week we take a quick second to hear from our partners at Sika Gear, and today I wanted to hear from Sika product category leader Dennis Zuck about exactly what it takes for a new product from Sika to make the cut and be released to the public. So here's Dennis with some interesting insight. Yeah, I mean, and it kind of goes back to some of those simple first statements we talked about and talking, thinking about, you know, what is it this product needs to do to be interesting and unique and what, what need does it need to fulfill? You know, so that's part of it. And the other part of it is, is, you know, you know, is it something that people are going to be happy to own and feel like they, you know, was worth everything that they spent to own it? Um, is it going to be, we use the term fit for use, which is kind of a corny way of saying, you know, fit for the field, you know, is it, is it something that is ready for prime time? And, you know, for us, we, we weigh that really heavily. We, we play the long-term bet here. We, we believe you wear our stuff long enough, you'll come to really appreciate the details and the thought. You know, and if we have a product that we don't think lives up to that, then it just doesn't make 
it falls it falls short of the floor uh, it falls onto the floor and never finds its way to a retail rack how much of that you know is left on the cutting room table and disappears versus how much of that is then put into the the hopper for in the future is are a lot of these things still an, an evolving system and process oh tons of that and so that you know you ask that self that question has that need gone away you know and maybe if that first product doesn't hit it the way we wanted to hit it it didn't mean the mean the need went away and so if we still feel like there's an opportunity to, to, to address that pain point that you might have or create that product that's going to make that difference we're still going and we absolutely have several of those and we're just we just don't feel where we want them to be yet and but we're excited to, to bring them out in the coming years they take years of development. Some some of the harder things, you know, they say if it's easy to do, everybody would do it. Some of those products fall into that 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 space. Pretty fascinating stuff. So to learn more about Sitka and what new products they have released to the world, visit SitkaGear.com. And now let's bring Kip Adams on the line. All right, here with us now on the line is Kip Adams. Welcome to the show, Kip. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, we're we're excited to have you back. Uh, it was just a little over a year ago, I think, that you made your first appearance on the Wired Hunt podcast, and that was such an interesting discussion that we wanted to revisit that topic again here today. And that topic last time was essentially the state of white-tailed deer in the country as of that period, early 2015. So. Today I'm hoping we can look at that same question, the state of whitetails in America or across North America for, for that matter, and uh, you know where we are today in 2016, a year later. And last year when we first talked, as I imagine you remember, things were looking pretty rough. A lot of the numbers that were coming in were, were showing that harvests were down, record book entries were way down. Uh, I think there was maybe a, a sense of a little bit of a sense of panic, almost that this kind of whitetail boom had busted. So to kick us off, Kip, now that we're, you know, a year later down the road, it's your high level. What's your high level impression of where we stand today? Are, are things better? Are things worse? Is it about the same? What do you think, Kip? I, th- I think overall things are definitely better. Um, I, I think there's still lots of issues impacting deer. And, and some of the things we talked about last year, some of the problems are still there. But uh, at least uh, some of the harvest started to turn around a little bit. So um, I think still things that we need to, to, to really be paying attention to. But uh, overall, definitely not worse. And, uh, and I think, if anything, a little bit better. Okay. Well, that, that's good news. And that's kind of what I've been picking up as we're, we're seeing new estimates coming in from this past season. And as I talk to people like you and others, it definitely seems like maybe we're we're back on track. And I guess that kind of brings me to a question that I think a lot of people talked about. I've referenced it just a minute ago in kind of in relation to this bust or kind of like this bubble has burst. Um, you know, over the past five to 10 years, as you know, lots of things have changed. And some people are saying, you know, the whitetail population has crashed, the bubbles burst, etc. On the other hand, I've heard some people talk about the fact that maybe this was more of a mild correction in it, or, or a little hiccup in in where things are going. Where you know this kind of change in the whitetail world over the last few years. How do you view that? Was it a crash? Is it a correction? Something in between? I don't think it's a crash. Um, I think there are some places that that have certainly really lost a bunch of deer. And uh, um, Iowa comes to mind, particularly just from the buck harvest. What's gone on there over the past decade. But uh, in most places, um, it's, it's more aptly termed a correction 
because deer herds just couldn't continue to, to expand at the rate they were throughout much of the range. Uh, for the last five to ten years, most state wildlife agencies have been purposely trying to reduce some deer herds. Obviously, when deer herds are brought down, then buck harvest has to decline. So today, you know, we're killing fewer deer in many places. Um, much of that, though, is, has been prescribed. So it's not a crash if you're prescribing it and you're not trying to accomplish it. Uh, I think it's a, it's a lot more, I guess, a correction would be a better better explanation for it. Yes. Now, I do think there are areas where uh, deer herds are brought lower than they should have been. So, uh, you know, some hunters were asked to reduce deer herds and, you know, locally, uh, could have easily taken them too low. And, and I have friends and, and colleagues across the Whitetails Range that live in some of those areas that, you know, oh, my gosh, this is this is way lower than we had anticipated. And, uh, and in many cases, lower than the agencies had prescribed. So um, I'm not uh, I'm not arguing with some of the people that say, man, the herd has actually crashed in my backyard. I think with the disease outbreak we've had, uh, the HD outbreaks you know, over the last five years and some other issues, there certainly are hunters in local areas where, herds are really down but deer managers often you know talk about populations of deer so they manage at a little higher scale the state agency folks do so for the most part there now deer herds are definitely lower but uh, uh I, i'm very confident they have not crashed and uh, even in areas where they are lower than they need to be now can be corrected uh, relatively easily speaking speaking of those corrections so last year i think i think at least from my standpoint, in the winter of 2015, you know, January, February, March, I think from what I saw, the kind of fever pitch of concern about deer harvests going down and populations struggling, I think it kind of reached a pinnacle there, at least as far as I had been paying attention to. And from that, it seemed like a number of states addressed that very issue you mentioned of the fact maybe in some places our harvest was too heavy. You know, maybe we were killing too many does. Maybe we were prescribing some things that, that went too far. And there seemed to be some changes. Uh, one example I can think of was that in Ohio, there are a number of counties um, that they pulled back on doe harvest totally. Or in, I think, in the upper peninsula of Michigan, the same thing, something along those lines. Um, do you think, you know, were there examples of these changes being made this past year that you think were the right changes? Or have, have some positive Updates been made to regulations to, to deal with this slight change in population and, and what kind of harvest our populations can sustain? Yeah, actually, I think there's two parts to that. One, um, uh, there are several agencies or state wildlife agencies that reduced antlerless opportunity for this year. Are the ones you mentioned, um, Western Maryland, um, same way, um, places in Pennsylvania, the same way, places throughout the U.S., uh, reduced the opportunity for hunters to take antlerless deer. So I think that certainly helps. And Equally as importantly with that, you have a lot of hunters who are just doing a better job today recognizing, hey, you know what, deer herds in my area are very low. So even if the agency or my state wildlife agency tells me you know, I can still shoot three doe or five doe, whatever the case may be, I think a lot more hunters today are doing a better job recognizing I don't need to fill all these tags. And in fact, if I don't fill all these tags, that's probably better locally for me. So I think we were also seeing hunters taking responsibility to, to try to be better managers within their own area and, and help regulate the number of doe that were removed as well. So so I think both of those situations were working together to help us out. Yeah, that's that's a pretty big point, I think, especially kind of tied back to what you mentioned a second ago where 
you know, managers or game agencies and whatnot, they're making decisions based at a, at a population level, at a high level, trying to manage as best as they can, but they'll never be able to manage down to the individual property as, as we as hunters see things. So even though on my property maybe I'm seeing that things are awful, I don't understand why our agency is saying we need to kill more does when there's no does behind my house maybe. Um, of course, it can, it can work the other way in that the agencies might be seeing one thing statewide, but that doesn't pertain to your situation, and you as the individual need to know when to pull back or when to push forward uh, at that at that level. I think, to your point, Kip, that's really where things almost have to go if we want to have, have a, a well-managed deer herd. In many of these cases, you just can't do it perfectly from the very highest level, right? That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, in our state wildlife agencies, they manage at either the, the county level or the deer management unit level or wildlife management unit level or, or whatever, you know, it may be called in your state. But obviously you or I don't hunt at that level. You know, we hunt at the property level. So you can get within any deer management unit in the country and I'm sure find pockets of, of habitat that has more deer than it should and others that have fewer deer than it could support. So... You know, hunters are at opposite ends of that, so I think it's just more important than ever for us as hunters to, to collect some, you know, some information about local deer herd, observation data, whatever, to get a good feel for, all right, even with whatever my state tells me can be taken here, let me help be as responsible as I can and remove uh, the right number, which the right number is neither too few nor too many, you know, to, to help the local situation. And, and I, I firmly feel that hunters today are taking a bigger role in that than ever before. And, and I see that as a very good thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I kind of want to take a step back here before we continue diving deep on a few of these things as we are. Um, you just finished working on the 2016 Whitetail Report, which is a great resource that you guys at the Quality Deer Management Association put out every year. Um, and I know that there there's a whole slew of different types of information in there that would be helpful. But having finished that just recently, what what were the biggest takeaways for you when you looked at all the different data and segments of, of whitetail-related information out there? What stood apart for you as the big takeaways from the 2016 edition of this year's Whitetail Report? Well, I think there's some, some really important pieces of information and some real important trends for hunters to understand, or at least to be aware of. But, uh, but my personal favorite in it is that, uh, once again, uh, the percentage of one-and-a-half-year-old bucks in the, in the national buck harvest dropped. And it dropped to the point that, for the first time in our history, across the U.S. now, we are killing more bucks that are three and a half or older than bucks that are one and a half years old. And, and that is just absolutely amazing to me. And, and, you know, there certainly are a few states that still do not collect harvest data or don't collect age data on their harvest, but the vast majority of the states do. So they report that data to us, and for the first time ever, we killed more bucks that were at least three and a half than one and a half, and that is incredibly special and something that every hunter should be proud of. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, um, of course, you know, being a member of the Quality Deer Management Association and, and really being uh, a supporter and in line with many of the different things that you guys are, are promoting and talking about, um, this is something I'm excited about. But for someone who maybe doesn't have experience with the ideas of quality deer management or the benefits of there being this higher percentage of three and a half or older deer, just for those people that maybe don't really see why this is so exciting, can you just walk us through, why is this a good thing? Why is this good for deer and deer hunters? Sure. Deer are a very complex animal with how they 
communicate with each other and uh, and how they essentially have evolved. And uh, the more natural age structure that as managers we can have today, you know, I mean, and the better job we do shooting deer so that the standing crop of deer has as, as natural of an age structure as possible, it allows all those mechanisms of the deer, how they communicate, react, work the way they're supposed to. So it's just a, it makes you, or at least it should make you feel really good to think, you know what, I'm doing my part to allow this deer herd to act the way that it was uh, evolved. So, and today we are closer to that than ever before. So that's one part of it. The second part of it, from just a pure hunting perspective, um, you know, there are more older bucks out there than ever before for people to chase around. And uh, even if you don't get to, to, to kill an older deer, just the fact that you have those older bucks in the population creates an entirely different hunting opportunity. Older bucks leave a lot more rubs. They leave a lot more scrapes. They do a lot more calling. They interact a lot more during the breeding season. So it's an entirely different opportunity to hunt a population of deer that has some older bucks in it. And then, obviously, at the end, uh, hunters love uh, antlers and and, uh, and big deer, whether it's big bodies or big antlers. And the fact that you have a higher percentage of bucks out there today in those older age classes um, just gives the opportunity to both photograph, see, and shoot um, many bigger deer than we had even five or ten years ago available to us. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely say that I've seen a lot of those benefits myself, both the places that I've been able to manage properties and other places where I've, you know, walked into a state maybe that just has a, has a higher population of older age class deer. It's, it's, I mean, as you know, Kip, it's just a different situation. I, one of the, one of my favorite things is just like the deer behavior that you get to see is so much different in a population that's more natural when there's a, you know, more mature deer, you get to see things like deer fighting you get to see that happen you get to see intense competition during the rut and all the other things that come with that um you get like for example for the longest time i grew up hunting in michigan i never saw a deer over two years old and then the first time i went and hunted in iowa i had like a five-year-old super mature great big nine pointer within like 40 yards of me i was filming a buddy hunting and this buck was snort wheezing over and over and over again for like 30 minutes that's something i never heard in my life to that point i never got to see anything like that and those are the types of just awesome experiences i think you can have when you're in a situation where that population is more balanced um that's right and hunters you know turkey hunters love the challenge of calling a turkey in or just the involvement of interacting with an animal same thing, you know, that's why I like turkey hunting. That's why I like uh, duck hunting and goose hunting. I love the interaction with the animal. And now, more than ever before, deer hunters are having that same opportunity. So, uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So so here's the thing about the, the mature buck numbers that you, that you shared in this report. You know, I've, I've posted some articles about it, and I think other media publications have, have been sharing this great news. Excuse me. But inevitably you hear people say, and this is whether you're talking about age structure of a deer herd or just the numbers of deer harvested. People say, well, how could you know that that percentage of three-and-a-half-year-old bucks were killed? Nobody in my state tells what, how old their bucks were anyways. Or how can you claim that 250,000 deer were killed this last year? You never saw my deer. Um, so this, this raises a question that lots of people have. I just recently worked on a little article about it, so I've been kind of asking these questions myself too and trying to understand it. But for our listeners, Kip, can you can you – Walk us through how state deer harvest estimates um, are are, create, are are discovered and shared. I know you guys have yep. a section in the Whitetail Report about this that's pretty fascinating, but I'd love to hear from you on it. 
Yep, and there's actually two parts to that. One is how they estimate the actual harvest or the number. Then the second is, which is a different question, is how they estimate the age structure of it. So we'll do the harvest first and then move on to the age structure. Perfect. And uh, states do this in different ways, but there, there's really two main techniques that, that agencies will use to estimate their harvest. And, uh, and what we reported this year in our whitetail report is some states report the minimum number of deer that got killed, while others try to report the total number of deer, or the, you know, they estimate what that is. And, and obviously, estimating the total deer kill, in my opinion, is far better. Um, but what most will do is, historically, when we had very short seasons, real well-defined seasons, most deer were killed over uh, you know, a small period of time, almost every state agency had a check station. Where hunters would bring their deer in, and biologists and technicians from the agencies could look at them, and that provided some confidence to the hunters that the agencies were, were getting their hands on deer, and, and things were good. And, uh, and I'm a big fan of check stations. I really, really like it, mostly because I like the interaction between the agency and the hunters. You know, it gives them a chance to talk and, and meet each other. And I've ran check stations for, for a long time uh, prior to, to my employment with QDMA. But Today, and actually they do get good data from them, but even then, some people who kill a deer don't take them to the check stations, even if it's required. So the whole idea of that that's the only way to get the total data is using a check station is really false. I mean, people people kill deer and sneak them home anyway. Um, fast forward to today, our seasons today are so much longer. We have a lot more seasons available, you know, more bow seasons, crossbow seasons, early muzzleover seasons. And given the fact that hunters just take advantage of them, which they absolutely should, and, and I personally do, but what happens now is suddenly, rather than killing the majority of the deer in just a handful of days, they get spread out over a few months. So to have agencies man a check station, it's just financially not possible in areas anymore because you just can't get your hands on enough deer um, in a short period of time. So what almost every state has gone to now is some other form of collecting data. Nearly every state today uses some type of, of online checking system, or at least that as one of the options for you to check your deer. Where you kill a deer, and you have to report it. Um, you can send in a card, you can call a telephone number, or you can just get on a computer, and uh, so they at least have that data. So some people say, you know what, I don't have to report my deer, so they don't know. Well, in the old days, you didn't have to take your deer to the check station either if you didn't want to. So the, the accuracy, there's not, not a big difference. But what most agencies will do is they apply some form of, of a correction factor or they give an estimate on the people who don't actually legally report their deer. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, when you kill a deer, but I'll use Pennsylvania because that's where I'm from, you have to report it. You can send in the report card or use online or whatever. And the online is easy, that's what I always do. So they have a measure. They know everybody who reported a deer. Well, then what the Game Commission biologists do is they will go out and visit meat lockers, food processors, that kind of thing, where they have deer, and we'll, we'll collect information from them. So in Pennsylvania, you have to tag a deer so they can see every deer that's there, see who killed it, and then they can collect data from it themselves, go back to their computers and say, hey, you know what? I see Mark Kenyon killed a deer, and I, had it, I looked at it today in this meat processor. Let me go check our records and see if Mark Kenyon reported this or not. And from that, they know that less than half of the people that legally kill a deer actually report them. And, you know, as hunters, we should be extremely embarrassed by that, you know, given how easy it is to report it and that, you know, it's in our best interest to report them. So, is that is so that anyway. an example? Is that an example number, Kip, or is that actually what you guys have been oh, it saying? Is, and, and I don't know what the exact number is, but I do know that it's, it's uh, less than 50% of the hunters 
who legally kill a deer report it. Is that in Pennsylvania, or is that an it average? That's in Pennsylvania. And okay. the, the Pennsylvania Game Commission has, has published that data. Um, I just can't remember what the exact percentage is, but I know it's less than 50. Okay, so sorry to interrupt. So, no, 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 that's a good point. So with that you know, process, our Game Commission will get their hands literally on forty or 50,000 deer a year. Uh, the average hunter has no idea of that, so they say the game commission can't know how this because they, you know, I didn't report my deer, or they didn't ask me if I killed a deer. Well, the reality of it is, they get their hands on a lot of deer. They can double check it with what got reported, and then from that, they're able to estimate what the total harvest likely was. So, are they exactly right with it? Probably not, but I bet you they are within, you know, a few percentage points of being exactly right. But the more important part of that is, since they do that the same way every single year, if they are a little bit off, at least their estimate from year to year is incredibly consistent. And that's the real important part from, from the management end. So, uh, so that is a great example of how to do it. Now, the other way of how states do it, and many states in the southeastern U.S. use this second technique, and I personally think that this is the best. What they do is they actually use a survey company that will randomly survey a certain number of hunters to ask them, you know, how many deer they shot, and, and they can ask them all kinds of questions from them. And uh, using a statistically valid sample, what it does is it allows them to then estimate what the total number of deer hunters killed during the year, and they are incredibly accurate. It's the exact same strategy that we use in our political polls. Because you know, in any election, any big election, you know they run these polls by talking to a certain number of voters. So in many cases, we know who's going to win those before the vote ever takes place. They're incredibly accurate, and deer managers use the, the same type of thing to estimate statewide deer harvest. And, uh, and that is a really, really good way to do it. And in most cases, because there's so many hunters in the states, these survey companies only have to talk to about 1% of the deer hunters to get a big enough sample to make them accurate. So, so, so this is kind so of... So the this... average hunter doesn't understand that or, or may not even believe it in many cases, but uh, it, uh, it is incredibly accurate when done appropriately. So yeah, I mean, it's it's natural, especially if, like for, for in my example, I didn't really pay attention too much in statistics class in high school, so it kind of seems crazy. But through, like you said, properly conducted surveys with a statistically significant sample size and process, you can actually see what the results would be within that smaller sample size, let's say 10,000 people or whatever. And because of statistics, that actually can be applied to the total 900,000 hunters or whatever it might be amazingly accurately. And I was kind of digging into this issue myself, trying to see, you know, how accurate is it? And in the case of Pennsylvania, there was a resource, the Penn State uh, Deer Forest Study, I believe it was, I was reading an article where they explained that they were trying to verify their survey, and when they look at the survey, that the random sample survey that they send out, compared to the the on the ground harvest numbers that they get from doing the things you mentioned, the check ins plus the correction factor, they found that their accuracy of the survey was within I think two to nine percent of the actual numbers they got. So surprisingly, seems very accurate. Um, is there is there any other way that states that do this check to verify, or is it just like the, the math is going to be right no matter what, we don't need to verify it? 
No, um, some, most states don't verify. The, the ones that use the actual Hunter survey, um, they don't need to verify because that's already statistically valid. Uh, the states that just require the harvest to be reported, um, most of those do not verify. I believe that Pennsylvania and New York are the only two that, that do. So for the rest of them, um, they are reporting, in most cases, just the minimum deer harvest that they know of, and then they just use that number from year to year. So I think the majority of states do not know the exact percentage of hunters that did report the, you know, the harvest legally, like Pennsylvania knows. So, uh, so what they base off that is, okay, we have the minimum number of deer that we know were killed. We'll use that number moving forward. So it's, it's a good number, but there are better ways to do it, um, in some cases more costly ways. But uh, if you can get the total estimate, and particularly through a hunter survey like that or checking those deer like Pennsylvania or New York does, those are, are much preferred methods and place a lot more confidence in that actual number. So, so did I hear you correctly a couple minutes ago when you said that you believe the best option is the survey? You think that that is the best option? I do, um, because it is the uh, it is done often by an independent company, often by responsive management, which is a, a natural resource uh, survey company based out of Virginia. They do work for all state agencies and federal agencies from a natural resources end. Often, uh, responsive management are the ones that conduct the survey, and they are just simply the best in the business of what they do. So, um, in my opinion, that is the best way to go for the agency because you not only get uh, numbers of deer, then you can have the opportunity to ask other hunter-related questions, either on you know their ideas on things or their preferences for things. So you're getting that data, which is top of the line, plus you have an opportunity to engage those hunters on other important topics. So that's yeah. why I really like those hunter surveys. Interesting. I, being from Michigan, where we don't have any kind of mandatory check-in, I've always complained about it, and I said, "Why? You know, we should have a check-in. We shouldn't have just a random survey that you know just a handful of people take." Being uneducated about it, I always thought that was a, a worse option. But it's interesting now, as I'm starting to hear from you and doing my own research, that that actually that's a pretty good way of going about it. Um, and I think there's a lot of people probably listening that have been confused about this too. So I'm glad that we could dive into it a little bit because I think it's a once you hear about it, it makes sense, and you can understand why states do it the way they do it, but when you don't have any idea, it kind of seems like these states are coming up with numbers and management plans kind of willy-nilly based on a handful of helpful people checking in their deer or sharing data and everybody else kind of keeping it to themselves. So it's yeah. uh, interesting, very interesting. So, so, Mark, that answers the actual harvest part. The second half of that is the age structure part, like how do, how do agencies get that? And, and there's a few different ways that they will. Some of them still do maintain check stations where they can collect biological data from the deer coming in. You know, that way they can pull a jawbone or look at that jawbone to get age data. Some of them require the hunters or ass hunters to send in uh, the, the incisors, the front incisors, to their office, which they will then send to the lab for cement manual aging so they can get it that way. Um, so there's different ways that they will get that age data. Pennsylvania gets it by those meat locker checks where they can see the jawbones of those deer. So there's a few different ways there. Um, so th there's more ways that they're getting age structure data than, than not. Um, actually, Virginia is a perfect example. Through their DMAP program, they require all of their DMAP cooperators to collect jawbones from all the deer that are harvested, provide them to the agency, so the agency can then age those deer. So... Lots of different ways for that. The, the important thing there is at least 
most states do collect age structure data. Um, it, it blows my mind that there's a few that, that still don't because I think, man, how, as a deer biologist there, I would so want to know what the age structure of that harvest is and you know how it changes over time. Um, but there's, there is literally a handful that, that don't have that data. Um, most do, and with those, even if or even given that some states collect it differently, um, I believe that most of the states that do collect it at least continue to collect it the same way each year, so they do maintain that consistency across years so they can monitor changes in the age structure, whether it's going up or down or, or staying stable. So you can, you can at least monitor those trends, which, which is the ultimately most important thing. That's right, yeah, and that's what they really, really need to be able to do, so okay. you're correct. So, so taking a step back then to the whitetail report, it seems like the big piece of good news is the fact that we've seen this kind of threshold pass where there's more mature bucks being taken. Were, were there any other items of good news that you found as, as major um, takeaways from this, this most recent year? Yeah, there sure were. Uh, I think one of the really cool things going on right now is something called the Wild Harvest Initiative. Um, as a hunter, you know, I've preached the benefits of hunters for years to, to non-hunters and, you know, and the, the amount of wild game that we consume, but then also share with others. Well, uh, actually, some researchers from Canada, Shane Mahoney from Conservation Visions in, in uh, Newfoundland, has started this, and he's actually starting an effort to quantify the amount of wild game and wild fish consumed in North America because his, his uh, contention is that there is so much more game that is eaten than most folks realize that if that game was not there and was not harvested and consumed by hunters and anglers, the cost, the economic cost to U.S. and Canada from the agricultural end would be astronomical. So think about it. I know you're a big hunter and, and outdoorsman. Think of all of the, the deer and elk and turkey and everything else you eat each year. Yeah. You know, think of if you didn't have that and you had to buy that much more beef and chicken and I'll multiply that, you know, by 12 million deer hunters in the in the country. Uh, this is uh, this is pretty cool. It's it's going to be a monumental effort, and that's why there's lots of different organizations and, and people who will be involved helping this. Um, we are so excited about it at QDMA that, that we have pledged fifty thousand dollars to help in these efforts. And my personal opinion is that this has a chance to show how important hunters are. To society, hunters and anglers, but especially hunters to society. And for the first time, you know, we have a great opportunity to show non-hunters and particularly anti-hunters just how darn important we are to what's going on, you know, even just from a feeding perspective. So, yeah, yeah. so the Wild Harvest Initiative, I think, is super cool, and uh, I'm excited to see it get started this year. Yeah, us too. I uh, We actually had Shane on as a guest last year. And, uh, you know, as you know, Kip, he's a, a very inspiring individual, and a lot of things he's working on are, are pretty exciting, and this being a perfect example of that. So I did think when I saw that when I saw the QDMA was, was stepping up to help with that, I was pretty excited to hear it. Um, it's, it's definitely a, a worthy cause for sure. Uh, now, on the other side of the coin then, when we're talking about some of the different challenges maybe that are facing deer and deer hunting, there were a lot that we talked about last year. Um, what do you think this year are the are the greatest challenges facing either the animals themselves or our tradition as hunters or opportunity as hunters? Well, I think we certainly, disease is certainly still a big one. And uh, we looked at a couple different things of that this year. And, and one of the questions we asked every state wildlife agency was, uh, you know, hey, what is the single biggest management issue that you face on a daily basis? 
I mean, what do you spend more time and more resources on than anything else? And from when all the results came back, the largest by far, and half of the states reported this, uh, the single biggest issue that they spend more time and resources on are disease and captive deer issues. And uh, so what that means is that they then rob the opportunity for spending all of that time and resources on other things that would be you know, more beneficial to hunters like hunter access, hunter recruitment, habitat enhancement, and that kind of thing. So, uh, so I think that's still a, a, a troubling troubling one that that is such a big issue and i agree with it i'm not saying they're wrong in spending it time where they should and i i think that it absolutely is the biggest because of some of the impacts of that so uh, we see that but also one of the, the newer challenges um has to do from from the law enforcement end and, uh, and i know we have some hunters that'll say man you know I, I can't stand my law enforcement officers or we'll have some that i say they love them but uh, wherever hunters fall on that you know Law enforcement, wildlife enforcement, you know, is a big part of what we love to do. It's necessary. It's important. And uh, last year, there was a story out of Illinois that, you know, they lost a, a big chunk of, of wildlife officers all at once. So we start digging in and seeing exactly what was going on with this, you know, what were the trends. What we found out is, you know, there's just a handful of states that actually have more wildlife officers today than they did a decade ago. Um, there's a bunch of states that have fewer today. And, you know, and that's not good. That trend is going absolutely the wrong way, you know, given that particularly we have more older deer today, you know, and just the increased focus on wildlife in general, the fact that we have fewer people out there helping to, to enforce those laws uh, is, is not, not positive at all. Right. If you're, if you're concerned about poaching or people, you know, not checking in their deer or doing all sorts of different things that as individual hunters and managers we, of course, hate to see, if we don't have more law enforcement officers to actually help manage that and deal with that, we're, we're going to be putting ourselves in a worse, worse position year in and year out. That's right. And and to take that one step further, we wanted to say, okay, you know, like how, what is the density of wildlife officers out there across the country? And it is amazing how much it varies. Some states, uh, for instance, Maryland, Maryland has more uh, wildlife officers on a per square mile basis uh, than any other state. And it averages out that each of their officers covers 28 square miles. So one officer, 28 square miles. 28 square miles is a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. You know, and that's the lowest in the country. It goes all the way up to the other end of the spectrum is North Dakota. So each officer in Maryland averages 28 square miles to cover. Each officer in North Dakota covers 1,865 square miles. <laughs> oh, geez. Almost 2,000 square miles. So you apply, you know, like figure out how many acres that is. I mean, that is astounding. And, and granted, or granted uh, you know, North Dakota has a lot fewer hunters than Maryland does, a lot more open land. But, but still, think about that. If you live there, you know, and your officer has to cover almost 2,000 square miles, you know, what are the chances that he or she, you know, will be able to respond quickly to, you know, somebody that's poaching near you or, or something that's, I mean that's just absolutely off the charts, and uh, not that's not a not a good thing at all. And, and it's not you know North Dakota game and fishers fall. I'm not criticizing them by any means. I mean all of these states, you know, both the law enforcement end and the biological end, you know, is all regulated by their budgets. And so, uh, man, oh man, but that's that's pretty amazing that yeah. there's a handful of states, you know, that are you know, a thousand square miles and more that each officer has to cover. So. Uh, not not very conducive for them, you know, really being able to, to help somebody in a very local situation. Well, 
Before we move on to my next question for Kip, we do need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this episode, Bear Archery. As we've done over the past few weeks, I wanted to share a quote from the legendary founder of Bear Archery, Fred Bear. And today, our quote is short and sweet. So here goes. And I quote, The history of the bow and arrow is the history of mankind. End quote. Isn't that just so true? The history of the bow and arrow and archery and bow hunting is just fascinating stuff. And so is the future. And Bear Archery is continuing to work to create that future of bow hunting. This year, having launched their very light and speedy new compound bow, the Bear Escape, and their brand new line of Bear X crossbows. So, if you're interested in more in learning about either of those, visit beararchery.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah, so, so speaking of budgets, this is something um, that I saw you guys wrote about in the report as well, and it's something I thought about uh, to a degree too. Very, uh, I believe, a significant amount of the budget made available to these state agencies who help manage our deer herds and enforce these important laws and everything. A significant portion of that budget comes from license fees, correct? That is correct. You guys did, you guys took a look at how license fees have or have not changed across many of the whitetail states um, recently. Could you tell us what you what you found there? And then I'd be curious on on your opinion on a couple of things related to that. Sure. We, um, we we put that in, and you're right. Those license fees pay you know, a big portion of our agency's budgets. And, and what I tell people is, you know what, if you want to help wildlife, buy a license. You know, Even if you're not a hunter, just buying a hunting or a fishing license helps tremendously. And, you know, and people often roll their eyes at you if they're not a hunter. I say, you know, do you like, do you feed birds? Oh, yeah, I love to see songbirds. You know, well, thank a hunter. You know, help out by buying a hunting license. That's a great way for them to be able to help. So, uh but yes, with uh, the hunting license sales, and we took a look at, all right, you know, when was the last time that you actually increased your license price? And and I'll be the first to admit that I know that, you know, we don't like to pay more for a hunting license, and you know, no hunter wants to do that. But the reality of it is, you know, if that pays most of the funding for this wildlife and wildlife management that we love, uh, we should at least hope that those license fees can cover the appropriate amount to to, to fund this stuff. So, so we asked every state, you know, when was the last year? that you increase the price of your resident hunting license. We've, you know, there's lots of different varieties of non-hunting licenses and other parts of resident youth, et cetera. So we just made it very clear, the resident hunting license, when was the last year was increased? And um, there was only a handful of states that have increased that price within the last five years. Uh, a lot more states that increased it, you know, five to ten years ago. And unfortunately, the majority of states, that hasn't been increased in over ten years. So you take a look at the cost of living more than 10 years ago versus today, it's very different. You know, think about what we pay for gas or, you know, or a rifle or even arrows for a bow today. Very different than, than you know, 15, 20 years ago. And, and actually goes all the way back. The state that has maintained their license the longest, and this just blows my mind, Kansas has not increased the price of their uh, resident hunting license since 1984. Wow. You think about the opportunities, the hunting opportunities you have in Kansas. You know, tremendous, tremendous opportunities with deer, tremendous bird opportunities there. You know, people go to Kansas all the time to, to be able to hunt. And, uh, and that agency, unfortunately, is working under, you know, a, a hunt, resident hunting license price that was based, you know, all the way back in 1984. So even though I know we don't like to pay more for them, uh, they certainly uh, deserve 
more <laughs> rather than hunting license there to help more adequately fund uh, a lot of the management efforts they're trying to do. Right. I mean, I think, at least me personally, I, I would imagine a lot of other serious hunters out there, I mean, I, I would gladly pay more because and I think maybe people have questions like, well, if we pay more, is it just going to some other, you know, padding the pockets of somebody else or is it actually going to go to our agency and conservation and all that kind of stuff? Um, I guess I understand those questions, but I think if I'm going to, going to pay extra for something, I would much rather be paying extra here where I know that it's going to support a very important cause and a budget that's already significantly strapped these agencies and, and biologists i think they as we've talked about their serious needs for additional funding we the people using it might be responsible for trying to help that a little bit i would think yeah no i agree i agree 100 percent. so but the one other thing that was very positive that we saw mark was uh hunter access is always a big issue and uh you know and a lot of times people just don't have a good place to go to hunt so we asked states uh you know, how many acres of state-owned land do you have right now that's open to deer hunting? You know, this is not national land, so it's not national forests or national parks or anything in the states that people can get, but just state-owned land, you know, uh, today versus 10 years ago. And what we found out today, there's over 50 million acres of state-owned land that's open to deer hunting uh, right now, or at least when the, the most recent deer season was in. And uh, in most states, uh, have that trend was up from a decade ago, so they had more land today state on land for deer hunters than uh, than 10 years ago uh, unfortunately there's certainly states like texas or, or or kansas that have very little private land you know or, i mean public land it's almost all private so it doesn't help them a whole lot but uh for much of the united states um a lot of the states today have more land than in the past for hunters so uh that's a good thing because they're certainly not making any more of it and uh, as we become more urbanized and people lose places to hunt these state lands like this just become all that more important. So uh, I was glad to see that that trend was increasing. Yeah, definitely. Access and, and public lands across the board, national and state, it's an important thing, as you mentioned. I think I think we had maybe talked about this once before, just about how one of the main reasons why people indicate them having had to quit hunting or not be able to get started hunting is because of a lack of places to hunt. Um, so this speaks to the larger issue of you know hunter recruitment too and retaining hunters. Um, this matters across the board for all those things. That is for sure. That's absolutely right. So I want I want to jump back real quick to the topic of license fees. I'm just curious about your opinion on non-resident license fees and the the dramatic disparity in resident prices versus non-resident prices is. This is kind of where maybe we're, we're seeing the opposite of what's happening on the resident side. On the resident side, it seems like you know these, these fees are very, very, very low, and maybe we're not raising them enough to help out. On the other hand, you've got the non-resident fees, which in some states are getting very, very high and very limiting. Do you have any opinion on that? I mean, is that the right way to go to just charge non-residents a, a huge increase in fee for, for those people to hunt? Or... I don't know. I struggle with this myself, and maybe it's just because I'm a non-resident hunter in many cases. Um, but I don't know. Do you have an opinion on that? Is that the right way to go? Yeah, well, I think that it's certainly – I do like it that resident fees are less than non-residents. Um, I think it's a benefit to the people living you know, within that state that, uh, that they do not have to pay as much as somebody coming in from another state. So I completely get that, and, and I'm fine with that. Um, having said that, there are tremendous variance in non-resident fees for different states. Some states – almost give away a non-resident hunting license, whereas others, you know, really, really reap the benefits of 
the opportunity that people want to come there. And actually, Illinois is a perfect example. You know, Illinois has a really good deer herd. You know, people want to go and hunt deer, and if you're as a non-resident going in, you're going to pay through the teeth, you know, to get there. Um, I guess I don't have as much of a problem with that state charging an adequate fee for a non-resident as I do some other states like Ohio that almost give away the non-resident license. And hey, I know hey, I've gone to Ohio and I've hunted, <laughs> so I've been very pleased that it wasn't that much, and there's probably some hunters saying, you know, that's terrible. Why, you know, we should be cheap. But I, I'm looking at it from, um, I guess, the, the funding end and think, man, oh, man, as budgets are cut today, we as hunters end up getting hurt in the long run where you have really inexpensive, I guess, non-resident licenses like that. So uh, I think we'd be a lot better off if there was a little more parity across the board on what non-residents were, were having to pay. In some cases, it probably would be a lot less. You wouldn't have to pay nearly as high a fees you know, maybe like in Illinois, if some of the other places, you know, it was a little higher or a little more representative of, of what the opportunity was you were getting. So, um, you know, I think ultimately, and, and this has been in the news lately, where, you know, should non-hunters have to pay some of the bill for the, the wildlife use and all that? And, um, and I'm a firm believer in yes, because hunters have paid for all of this for so long that, uh, you know, I think other users should pay a little bit. And some will say, well, yeah, but then they will get a say at the table if they do. And you know what? They already have a stake at the table. So, so I don't think that, that just because they pay, it adds anything to them. Historically, you know, hunters were about the only ones sitting at the table, stakeholder-wise, and that's not the case at all anymore. There's the stakeholder group is much, much bigger. And uh, so these others that are benefiting from our wildlife resources, I firmly feel that they should pay a little bit of their own fair share uh, to be involved with that as well. Right, right. And I, I think, um, you know, I believe there was uh, some legislation that was, was pushed maybe a decade or more ago trying to add some type of excise tax on other outdoor recreation items, non-hunting related, hiking, camping, et cetera, that kind of stuff. And that was shot down. Is there any chance of something like that ever, ever happening again? Or have you heard winds of something like that being brought back to the table? I haven't heard anything recently on that. Um so it's possible, I guess, it's being considered now, and I just don't know about it. But uh, um, I do think that it will be brought back um, just because as budgets become more limited, you know, they have to find ways to help fund some of the stuff. And given that those other people are, you know, are using those resources, you know, I think that's a very uh, responsible way to coop that back. And uh, so it's a good way to do it. And I have some firsthand experience with that. Uh, first job I had out of graduate school was for the state of Florida. I worked for Florida Game and Fish and managed uh, – 10,000 acres down there for the state, and uh, any hunters who came in to our wildlife management units had to buy a, a $25 management stamp, and then that gave them the right to hunt on, at that point, like 4 million acres in the state. Well, anybody who came in and used those lines that was not hunting didn't have to pay a cent, and their argument was, well, we're not shooting anything or killing anything, but my argument was, as the biologist in charge of that, a big part of my budget each year went to maintaining the roads and maintaining the creek crossings and doing everything else so that everybody that wanted to use that property could access it. And I was glad to do it. But, you know, and I would tell the bird watchers, you know, you tear this road up every bit as much as, you know, somebody driving by here hunting or, you know, you need to use that creek crossing as much as somebody else. So, you know, my opinion was always, even though they're not shooting or taking meat home, you know, most hunters who come on here aren't taking much meat home. But yet, still, they, you know, they are using, they are, uh, I guess, seeing the beauty of the place, 
They're seeing the wildlife. They're photographing wildlife. They're using the, the resources that we have there to allow them to access it. So, so I always felt that they should pay as well. So, um, yeah, it uh, seems whether that comes back or not, I certainly would, would vote for it. And when I'm buying binoculars and hiking boots and all the other stuff, you know, I'd be glad that uh, that part of what I was paying goes to make sure that there are places there to be able to hike and see wildlife long into the future. Yeah, I agree 100. percent It just seems like a common sense thing to me. Um, now I know, you know, increasing taxes or increases in license fees or any of these things, you know, it's kind of taboo. Obviously, lots of people want to stay away from saying those words because people don't like them. But at the same time, when it comes to a resource that we value so much, I think we need to step up sometimes too and, and help take responsibility for it. So. I want to take a step back again now to one of the first challenges you brought up that are facing deer and deer hunting today, and that is disease and captive deer-related issues. Um, and I know they're kind of tangled in together, so we might kind of cross crisscross between the two. But starting with the, on the de- disease standpoint, from you know from what I've heard and, and seen over the last year or so, we we haven't had a real big year when it comes to HD, EHD, or anything like that um, compared to like what happened in 2012 and 2013 when those diseases had major impacts on populations across a number of states. Um, but I think CWD, chronic wasting disease, is something that has definitely still been prevalent, and, and we've been seeing more and more of that pop up in the news over the last year, um, for instance, in my home state of Michigan. Um, Kip, what is your take on, number one, what's what's the status of CWD across America this year? And number two, where are things going on this, on handling things, on researching things, on coming up with some type of solution or plans? What's happening here? All right, well, we now know that the CWD is in 23 states and two provinces, um, and Korea. Uh, we had an elk in Canada that got shipped to Korea, so CWD is in those places, and the real big things that came out of 2015, both research on the disease-wise and, and what we saw was that the first time we saw that the plants can definitely uptake uh, the prions or the infectious material that causes CWD and pass it to other animals. And, uh, and that, that's pretty scary. I mean, you know, if you have an animal that has CWD and, and deer can transfer that disease, you know, through urine and feces and that. So if a deer who has it defecates in an area, what that means is if a, if a plant grows there later, it can take up those the prions or the infectious material from that up through the root system, up through the plant, out into the leaves. And then when other animals come and eat those leaves, pass that on to the other animal. And that had not been shown before and until now. And that's, that has serious implications, uh, both for the spread of the disease, you know, from a deer end, but also just from an agricultural end. So think about the Midwest or anywhere, you know, where our row crops are and all the corn and soybeans and other stuff that, that it takes to feed our country is grown. And now for the possibility of these prions, you know, being taken up into those plants and then put into other deer and the American consumer, uh, you know, I think that's just the beginning of what we're going to talk about there. And that was more concerning because the other big piece of research that came out last year was that they have now seen some infection in humanized mice, some CWD infection. And, and what that means is, you know, the, the World Health Organization has always said that there is zero evidence that CWD has been passed to a human. And, and that's a very good thing because obviously we couldn't eat venison if it did. But they're always doing research just to see, you know, like how solid is the species barrier that keeps us out. 
they take these mice and they put some human genes in them and they were basically feeding them the CWD material and uh, what they found was, gosh darn it, they actually got you know infected with it. And uh, to be very clear, they were doing this in a lab and they were getting this material into them, you know, in ways that it's highly unlikely you or I could ever come in contact with in the, in the real world. But uh, it's still the first time that they've showed, you know what, it, it, it may be possible. So uh, given that now they know it goes through plants and that they can make these mice infected with it, that's a big deal. And, and some people continue to say that CWD is, a, you know, it's overblown. This is not a big deal. They could not be more wrong. It absolutely is a huge deal. The two biggest uh, newspaper articles out last year on CWD, one of them was a headline said that the experimental CWD vaccine failed in initial testing. Well, it certainly would be good if we could have a, a vaccine, you know, to, because the biggest way that the disease currently is spread is through live animals. You know, when we move animals, you know, to, to different game farms and shooting preserves and that kind of thing. So, so if we could get a vaccine, that was, certainly would be good. Uh, at this point, we don't. And the second uh, headline that was so big was that said the CWD kills 19% of the deer herd annually uh, in this one place in, in Wyoming. You know, and this is one of the first areas that actually got the disease. And what they see now is that 19% of their deer die annually to that disease. That's a big deal. You know, I mean, that's on top of the deer that die to hunters and cars and predators and so think about that. You know, if, if you're or you are in Michigan or in Wisconsin where we first had it uh, in the east, you know, one out of five deer gone, that's, that puts a lot fewer deer in the landscape for you or I to go see and, and shoot, that's for sure. And the disease experts take a look at it and say, you know what, this is you know, a disease that takes a long time to really start showing population-level impacts. And uh, I think we're just starting to see those out west. And uh, Certainly means you know that we we will follow. We will see them here in the east. But uh, I am uh, I am extremely discouraged at what the future of CWD holds for us, and I'm extremely disappointed at some of our folks uh, in the U.S. who continue to say that this is not a big deal and hunters don't need to worry about it. Uh, they absolutely need to be concerned with it. Yeah, it's 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 uh, to your point. It's kind of disheartening to see some people that have a very large platform in the hunting world say some stuff that seems very counter. Uh, counterproductive and not in line with with what science is telling us in any way whatsoever, right? Um, That's correct. So, so I think to your point, the the issue that I think some people have is that a lot of these impacts of CWD are slow moving. The population level impacts, like we're seeing in Wyoming right now, you know, that's not happening yet in Michigan. The issue is that if we don't do something about it in Michigan. Someday we might have that issue where 20%, 30% of your herd is impacted and dying from something like that. And you know, to to pass that, to pass that down to our children or grandchildren seems like a pretty awful thing to do, just so that we can have it easier now in today's hunting world, or don't need to deal with a couple of extra regulations or whatever it might be. Um, so, so that brings me to the next thing I'm curious about. When you look at how states handle. CWD when they discover CWD and what they then do after that it seems like there's a number all sorts of different states are going about in different ways it doesn't seem like there's any consistent playbook that everyone's following uh, I think you can see a perfect example of that with Wisconsin who took a very aggressive approach to it when they initially discovered it and then 
and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Kit, but from what I understand, right, they had this aggressive approach to begin with, and then after so many years, there's been all sorts of public outcry, uh, upset with what was done, and now it seems that what's being done when it comes to CWD in Wisconsin is is much more lax, and it's much more, okay, we're just going to kind of live with it. Um, can you Can you tell me first, is that accurate? And then number two, is there any kind of what's the best way to handle it? I guess when a state does discover it or once a state has it, is there any type of best practice for for how to move forward in a positive direction? Yeah, and regarding Wisconsin, uh, you know, in fairness to the DNR, there they were the first state east of the Mississippi River to get it. You know, clear back in two thousand and one and two thousand and two were the big years there, and so little was known then that. The best data at the time said, you know what, you just need to eradicate deer and stop it from spreading. So, so that's what the DNR tried to do, and, and obviously that failed miserably because they, you know, they didn't have the, the support of the hunters and the landowners to, to execute that plan. So uh, it turned into a, to a fiasco there. You know, and, and fairness to them, though, because there just wasn't that much known about it, and it turns out looking back, you know, that was absolutely the, the wrong approach to, to take. Um, so... Loose public support, move forward, it turned into an absolute political uh, hot potato that has never really allowed them to adequately address the disease. And so now, rather than managing the disease, they are simply monitoring it. And, and that's what the official verbiage out of Wisconsin is, is that we're no longer managing the disease. We're just monitoring it to see how it spreads. And Boy, from a, a management standpoint, that is the absolute worst thing in the world to be able to do. And you know, and the DNR does not want it to be that way. They're they're forced to to be in that way. So they're just watching it spread and spread and just grow larger in the state by the day. You know, one of the states that has you know one of the strongest hunting cultures and hunting traditions, you know, in North America, is losing a piece of it every single day because because of what they're doing. Uh, fortunately, other states have learned from that experience. Have learned from new research. Uh, and I think your state is a perfect example. You know, Michigan has a very calculated approach, I think a, a very confident approach to, to what they need to do, and they have thus far done a great job, you know, not dictating to the public what will happen, but talking to the public about what will happen, what they need to do, and asking for help and support, you know, and because by doing that you garner hunter support, because if you want to go in and sharpshoot on somebody's land, you know, you need access. And uh, thus far, they have done a really good job being good partners with the public. So uh, I think that they have a much better chance of maintaining the disease in, in small areas, you know, and keep it from growing like we've like we've seen it grow in Wisconsin. Do you do you think that something like a set of best practices or a protocol is that something that's needed or be beneficial for an organization like a I don't know like a QDMA or an NDA or anyone or just a state agency to, to put together, hey, here is our recommended approach to handling a CWD situation so that there's something standardized across all the different states because it doesn't seem like this whole CW, excuse me, CWD thing is going to disappear anytime soon. It's more than likely given things that we've talked about and given some of these issues with the captive deer herd transfers, it seems like if anything, it's probably going to start showing up in more places. Is there a need for some type of standardized approach and prescription for how to deal with this? There, yep, there is, and I agree with you. This is going to continue to spread uh, given uh, the, the captive industry and, and some others. So um, many states do have pretty similar CWD plans or at least components of those plans, how they're going to react and what they're going to do. Um, one of the big differences states uh, the authority over 
captive cervids and this whole thing are, are differ by state. So some states, just the state wildlife agency has complete authority. Others, it's the Department of Ag. Some it's shared. So because of that, many states' CWD plans or response plans differ slightly based on how much authority the DNR has over those different components. But uh, at least there is consistency across much of the board on, all right, let's identify where the disease is first. Let's uh, monitor around it to see is it very contained or is it already getting away from us to try to assess the situation and then figure out the best way to move forward. Uh, but along those lines, actually what we, we in QDMA just uh, developed, we, now that it's in Michigan and spreading, our QDMA members in our state chapter said, man, we could really use some help, some talking points to share with hunters as we talk to them about how we as hunters can, can help with this. So uh, actually we worked with the, the DNR there. Uh, we worked with the, the CWD project leader from USGS, the National Wildlife Health Council, and uh, put some best management practices together for hunters from a management side. You know, there's information out there right now, best management practices, you know, if you hunt in one of those zones, how to process meat, what to do. But there's never been anything for somebody who lives or manages habitat in those zones. So we actually just put together a two-page best management practices centered around the, the four cornerstones of QDM with herd management, habitat management, hunter management, and herd monitoring, what the average hunter in a CWD outbreak zone can do uh, to do his or her part to help improve the situation. And, uh, and actually, we have that on our website. I'll get a, we can get a copy of that to you so you can see it. But that's yeah. kind of the answer. The states have their way that you're going to go, but you know clearly that as hunters, we have a big opportunity to, to help in situations like this. So it addresses things like, you know, should I stop planting food plots? Should I not plant root crops? You know, should I start killing all deer when they're young? Uh, kind of the whole thing, how that fits in. We gave them uh, what we feel are the best strategies to, to, to help make things the best moving forward as they possibly can be. Wow, that, that's a great resource, it sounds like. And that's available at, I'm assuming, at QDMA.com? That's correct, yep. That's, uh, that's there. And I know our folks in Michigan are sharing it like crazy uh, with, a, with their uh, – fellow hunters there, but yes, anybody who lives in a zone like that can go grab it at QDMA.com, and also encourage people, you know what, if you don't live in the CWD zone, you should take a look at it as well, just to see what these people are going to have to deal with, to, to give them a little more incentive to keep fighting, to make sure that it does not get to uh, to their area, because that's certainly just a curse once it is in your area. Yeah, yeah, it's scary to see that creeping down into my neck of the woods here in Michigan and uh, in so many other places, too. I know a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have to deal with that in one way or another. Um, so so kind of the final piece to that puzzle, then, we've alluded to it a couple times, but the captive deer industry. For for a hunter like myself or maybe some of our listeners who, who, who aren't involved in the business of captive deer and who don't hunt in a captive deer facility, why should we care what's going on with this industry and how it's being regulated. Why should we care? The biggest thing to the, the average hunter today is that the vast majority of disease experts, you know, the people studying this disease across the country say it is not moving or growing across the country the way that it would if it was just naturally spreading, that, uh, that it's being moved much, much faster and arriving in new areas at a much higher rate. So it all comes back to the, you know, the most uh, likely way that it is moving across the landscape right now is by deer from inside of one fence being moved to, to another fence. 
And uh, so wherever you are on the whole, do your offense issue, whether some people say that's unethical, some say, no, that's fine. You know, it doesn't matter where you are on that, and I'm not going to say where I think you should be. But given that we are moving this disease around more so with live deer that we're moving than any other way, and given that this disease is by far one of the single biggest implications negatively impacting our future herds and our future hunting opportunities, that's why hunters should be most impacted by it or are most concerned, I guess, with it. We really should stop the movement of these live deer, you know, up among facilities like that, given that that's the number one way that we're spreading it. So if we know that, the single best way to, to help slow the spread is to stop that live transport. So as a hunters, I think that's where, you know, we should recognize, hey, here's something I can do and let folks know that I don't agree with this either. Or if they don't want to get involved and they think, man, why should I? That's why, because that is uh, the best way that we can help slow the spread down and, and keep it from coming to their neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I've talked about my own personal ethical views on this. I won't dive into that any further and beat that dead horse anymore. But, but it's great to hear, too, you know, again, the, the scientific and, and the reasons behind the dangers of this continuing as is from a simply deer herd, deer management standpoint. Um, and, and related to that, another thing that popped up in the news this year were concerns with the transfer of CWD in relation to the deer urine industry, several states banning the use of deer urine attractants. Um, what do you think is going on there, Kip? Is that something we're going to see more often, and do you think it's a good idea? I think you're going to see it talked about a lot more often, given now that both Virginia and Vermont have banned the use of, uh, of urine. And I know that Pennsylvania considered it, you know, is actually considering it right now. So uh, it's one of those gray areas because if you take a look at, you know, we know that the prions and CWD are spread through urine. Well, we know that for sure. What we don't understand is exactly, you know, like how much of that the prions are needed to, to transfer the disease or, you know, is a little bit okay and more not. Uh, that's where some of that gray area is. So that's where a lot of the argument is going on right now. So if you want to say, you know what, to be the most conservative, should we not allow any urine at all? There are some people in some states like Virginia, Vermont are there. There's others that say, you know what, there's not the evidence yet that clearly shows this, so we're not going to, you know, stop all movement of it. For my take of it is, you know what, we have, we have other synthetic urines that people can use for attractants, and, and I typically am very conservative-minded, and I always fall to the side of, of the resource on this one. So I completely understand where these states are coming from. Um, I think it's going to be a much bigger issue moving forward. Now that you have two states that have definitely done it and a third that is, is trying, I think that you're going to see more states go that route in the very near future. It's definitely going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on and uh, the, the, the waves that could send through the, the hunting industry too. I know people it are is concerned. because I think it's a very slippery slope because we also know that, that dirt has prions. So you know, does that mean that you, if you go into a state that has CWD, you can't bring your hunting boots back with you? Because they can't have mud on them, you know, does it mean that now that plants can take up the, the prions that you can't bring in hay from a state that has CWD? Uh, I think that there's a, a huge can of worms that the urine is, you know, part of with this. And uh, it's it's a challenging time from the disease end of it for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think it... It again, it comes down to some of these bigger, bigger aspects of that, like the the transfer of captive deer. If we can try to nip some of those things in the butt sooner than later, maybe we don't need to go down this wormhole of of issues with transfer through, whether it be 
attractants or mud or or who knows what. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um. So so one other thing I I noticed in the Whitetail report that I want to try to touch on real quickly before we have to wrap things up was the fact that in and tell me if I got this right, Kip. But I think off the top of my head, I remember seeing that the national average fawn recruitment rate is the lowest it ever has been or lowest in a long period of time. Is that right, Kip? And why that is, is that? Correct. And why is that something that we should be aware of and, and should pay attention to? And, and we monitor that very closely, and you know, and we get the data from the state wildlife agencies uh, each year or every other year. Uh, real quick, back in 2000, the average fawn recruitment rate was uh, was almost one fawn per doe. You know, it was just on like 0.89 fawns per doe recruited into the deer herd. Fast forward to 2015, that had dropped to 0.58 fawns per doe. So. Uh, just over half a fawn per doe today. So very, very different than why the implication of those hunters is obviously if we're recruiting fewer fawns, that means deer herds do not grow nearly as quickly as they used to. Um, so you're not bringing nearly as many deer into the herds. Now, if you're in a situation where you have too many deer anyway, this is a very good thing for you because it's helping you out. If you're at the other end of it where, you know what, we're trying to grow a deer herd, then, then this is not good at all. Um, the flip side is, you know, about every other fawn born is a buck fawn. So if you're looking to bring the most bucks into a deer herd, the way to do it is to have the most fawns hit the ground in the spring and survive till fall. So there's a really big picture, though, is just the productivity rate of the deer herd. You know, people want to see deer, they want to shoot deer, and as these fawn recruitment rates drop, that just means there's going to be fewer deer there to see and to shoot. And uh, that's being impacted by, you know, increasing predator populations, uh, loss of habitat, you know, there's lots of things that play into that. But the important part of it is for people to recognize that that's way fewer today uh, than it used to be in the past. So the average hunter, for the most part, just does not need to shoot or cannot shoot as many antlerless deer today as they could have 10 to 15 years ago. So or at least for everyone you do shoot today, the impact on that deer herd is much greater than it would have been in the past. Is is something is is conducting some type of survey on your own individual property to try to understand what the fawn recruitment rate on your own in your own area is is figuring out how to do that a pretty important thing for the average deer hunter because I think you know it's pretty serious deer managers there's a lot of guys that do that um, but I don't know if the random guy that hunts 500 acres but maybe doesn't do a ton of food plots and stuff. I don't know if that type of person is actually paying attention to things like fawn recruitment rate and how that might impact how many deer they kill. Would you recommend that more people start doing that? Oh, I absolutely would. And the cool thing about it is that it's free. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything to do it. And it, and it doesn't even take you any more time because you just do it while you're hunting. And, and I tell you that I think everybody should, should do an observation, right? Every time they go hunting, regardless if you're hunting on five acres or 10 or a thousand or 10,000 and uh, you know, I am in north central Pennsylvania. We, we share our property with lots of friends and family members. And uh, But one of the rules is every day you go hunting, you keep track of how many hours you hunted and how many bucks, does, and fawns you saw. And uh, and that's it. So, it, you know, it's very simple to do. It doesn't cost anything. I get that data from all the guys on our farm throughout the whole year. And that allows me then to just see, you know, like, at the end of the year, from an observation standpoint, you know, how many bucks did we see? How many fawns? How many does? And that allows me to figure out about how many fawns per doe we had. And then uh, the important part is that I compare that to what we had last year and the year before and five years ago and ten years ago. And then, so that gives me a really good feel for, you know, what is the, the reproductive 
recruitment recruitment rate on our place? Is it going up or is it going down? And I use that every year when I set our target doe harvest. I use that for that a lot when we pick out, you know, are we going to shoot three does this year or five or 20? So, uh, so yeah, whether you own land, you hunt public land, whatever, I strongly encourage hunters to, to just keep track of that. That is the perfect way to figure out, you know, are you likely having more fawns or fewer fawns uh, than in the past? And then allow you to make good choices as a hunter to, to shoot the right number of does. I think a big takeaway for me, and hopefully for a lot of people listening, you know, just over the last couple of years, as we've seen things changing with, you know, our, our herds being slightly less productive, not being able to reproduce as quickly and, and recruit those fawns up into the adult population, with habitat loss in a lot of places, with large disease issues in some areas, as all these different things are happening, it's seeming more and more often that the one-size-fits-all strategy for hunters is no longer going to work. And I think the responsibility is going to have to continue falling on the individual hunters and managers. We more and more need to take what our state agencies tell us, use that as a guideline, of course, but then say, okay, what does that mean on my individual property? And start making more more informed decisions, I guess, based on what we're seeing on the ground. Um, exactly. No, that is exactly right. And I, and I hope that that's something that um, that – I can do a better job of and that everyone can try to try to learn a little bit more. I think a lot of it comes down to education, right? Trying to figure, okay, how do I figure out these things? But I think once you pass that for those first couple steps, it's then an easy habit to fall into and then um, you know allows you to make better decisions as a hunter. No one no one's gonna pull the trigger but you. Your your state agency isn't pulling the trigger. Um, your neighbor isn't pulling the trigger for you. That that's on you. Um, and that's on me and all of us. So I think um, I think maybe that that's a big message I hope we can all take from this is that there's a lot of things going on today and, and we need to take responsibility for as much as we can. Oh, that's right. I've ended the last few seasons with uh, unused doe tags in my pocket that uh, from our place that I certainly couldn't have used and had the opportunity to use but uh, just chose not to because of the situation we were in where five to ten years ago, you know, uh, we fought tooth and nail to the, the last day to fill every doe tag we had from everybody that hunted our place just to make sure that we were doing right by deer. And uh, it's a very different situation for us today. And uh, even though I could still shoot as many does on our farm as I could have five and ten years ago, uh, I shoot far less uh, because of the situation we're in. Yeah. So, man, Kip, this is this has been great stuff. And there's about 20,000 other things I'd like to talk to you about, but I know we, we don't have time. Um, but for people who want to learn more about some of these different resources we've talked about or the Whitetail Report that was recently um, you know, put out there, where can they go to, to get that kind of information, Kip? So they can go right to our website at qdma.com. Um, we do these annual whitetail reports uh, each year. They're all on there. They're all free downloads for folks, uh, in addition to all the other uh, cool deer stuff they can grab. But, uh, yeah, just go right to qdma.com and uh, get what they need. Definitely. I, I highly, highly recommend anyone listening as well. If, if you aren't a member of the Quality Deer Management Association yet, even if you're not interested in targeting mature bucks or doing any of these larger things, if if you want to do nothing but learn more, joining the QDMA.com is a great place to start. They're just full of tremendous resources. Their magazine, their website, uh, people like Kip. Uh, just there's so many opportunities to learn more about deer and deer hunting and how to be a more responsible deer hunter and manager in a world where I think that's that's more needed than ever. So. Please join the QDMA if you haven't already. And Kip, thank you, thank you so much for your time here today. This is this has been fascinating, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. All right, thank you, Mark. Always good to talk with you. Uh, you have a good day. Thanks a lot. You too.
All right. Well, as I expected, that was a great conversation, and I certainly learned a lot and hope you did too. Before we wrap things up, though, we do need to give a big thank you to our partners who help keep this podcast on the air. So thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And with that said, most importantly, thank you to everyone out there tuning in today. We really appreciate it. I hope you found this chat with Kip informative and empowering. As we discussed, more and more of the future of Whitetails is on our shoulders. So let's take that responsibility seriously. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.